It was Shakespeare's Juliet who famously told her love, Romeo, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And what Juliet was communicating to Romeo was that although they were in love, their families were warring. The Montagues and the Capulets. I don't remember much from literature, but I remember some of that. And they were warring, and she was essentially saying, it doesn't matter what your name is. Our love is stronger. Our, our passion is deeper. And we know the story of Romeo and Juliet and how that ended. But she was saying that names don't matter. And I'm here to tell you today that names do matter, don't they? When it comes to God, they matter a lot. And today we conclude our series that we've been in all summer called AKA God, and we've taken a look at many of the different names of God. We've taken a look at the fact that he is faithful, and he is faithful. We looked at the fact that he is our father, and he is that. He's our shepherd. We looked at the fact that he is everlasting, that he is king. And last week, we looked at the fact that he is our provider, our great provider. But I want to tell you today that God is all of those things, and all of those things point to the most important one that we're going to take a look at today. And they're built on all of these things to point to the fact that he is most importantly our Savior. He is our Savior. And God, if he is anything, he is our Savior. You see, he can be faithful. He can be our Father. He can be um, everlasting. He can be our King. He can be our, our, our great provider. But most importantly, he is our Savior. And today my prayer is, is that wherever you are spiritually, Wherever, what we've ever, whatever we've come in here with today, that God would take that, that he would take where we are right now today and impress upon our spirit the importance of the fact that he has set us free and he is therefore our savior. I'm really glad that you're here. It's Labor Day. Thank you for uh, getting in the boat and uh, swimming here, whatever it took to get here today. Uh, I know it's raining. My name's Todd, by the way. I'm the lead pastor. Thanks for those of you who are joining us on a web stream. We're glad that you are joining us today for this last and, and kind of last installment in this series, AKA God. I've learned a lot. I, I hope you have too. Uh, but we're, our, our struggle and kind of our challenge and, and our mission has been to learn uh, through these names of God a little bit about our journey with God and a little bit about what that vertical relationship is like, and maybe even how we can apply it to the horizontal relationships, the fact that God has all of these different names, all of these descriptions means something. It's important. It, it actually has a deep and a great meaning, but nothing is more important than the fact that he is our Savior. And I believe in the church that sometimes we may take this theme a little bit for granted. We might take the idea that he is our Savior, the promise and the truth that he is our Savior, and I think that we might allow it to, to kind of just roll over our heads and kind of miss our hearts because we've heard it so much. And perhaps you're here today or you're listening and um, you've you're been in church for a while, but you, you hear it, right? 
And, and guys get on you know, stages and they're on TV and they talk about the fact that God is our Savior and that Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. And I think that sometimes if we don't stop and maybe take a deeper look into the meaning of God our Savior, I think that we can very easily take the most important thing that he is for us for granted. And that is that he is our Savior. And so today I want to take a look at what does it mean that he is our Savior, a closer look at it. And I want to start where we've started before, and that is in some of the descriptions that Psalms, that the psalmist lays out for us. David understood that God was his Savior. He, he called him his mighty fortress. He called him his deliverer. He called him his redeemer. All of those things really, are, are really stem from the idea that he is our Savior. And David speaks so much about God being his Savior and deliverer and redeemer. Check this out, Psalm 27, verse 1. He says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? We just sang about the fact that we don't need to fear. And David declared that in Psalm 27.1. He declared that he was the deliverer in Psalm 18 verse 2. Check this out. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And so he declares that he is his deliverer. And then finally, he declares many times that he is his redeemer. The psalmist, uh, David, referred to this in, in Psalm 19, verse 14. He says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. All of these things, all of these descriptions point back to the fact that God was his savior. And I want you to think for a moment about David's life. There was, there was a lot in his life to be afraid of. There were many things that, that caused him great fear. Think about the fact that he was a shepherd as, as a child. He was, as a young man, a shepherd. And as we talked about a few weeks ago when we talked about the Lord is my shepherd and that he is our shepherd, that God is our shepherd, that shepherds faced fear and danger all the time, didn't they? And David, as a young man, faced that same fear and that same danger. He would have communicated to his children later in life and his children's children, and he would have heard the stories of the fact that God was the Savior of their people, that he was the great Redeemer, and that he set them free from the bondage of captivity there in Egypt. And so he understood that God was his Savior. As he got a little bit older, but still a young man as a shepherd, he defeated a great giant, a Philistine, named what? Goliath. And I'm sure there was great fear involved in that. David also fled from King Saul, his predecessor, who sought to kill him, and his son, his best friend Jonathan, who like threw spears at him. I mean, that's a great friend right there, isn't it? And so David had the experience of having things in his life that he absolutely understood what fear was, and he understood what bondage was, and he under understood that he needed a Savior. And so all throughout Psalms and all throughout his words, he cries out that God is his refuge, that God is his deliverer, and that the Lord is his salvation. And in many of those things, David was seeking salvation from God from physical danger, but I don't want you to miss the fact 
that David made the jump from that thing which is physical to that thing which is spiritual in one of his most difficult moments in his life. We read about the fact that David chose as king to have an adulterous affair with Bathsheba. And then he made matters worse, because that's usually what happens when we sin. He made matters worse and sent Bathsheba's husband to the front lines to certainly be killed in battle. And he committed murder and adultery. And it makes me wonder if David's greatest moment of seeing God being his salvation was at that point, I want you to capture this, when his sin, as he says in Psalm 51, was right there in front of him. And I know that um, we don't like to come into church and hear a whole lot about sin in our modern day. I, I get that. But man, I think that David realized that spiritually speaking, he needed God to be his savior when he looked deep within, when he really got introspective and looked at, at the junk in his life and realized that he was far from God. And I want you to hear that, man, when, when we are the furthest from God is when it's most real that we need him to be our savior, isn't it? It's when we are furthest from him and when our, our, our mistakes and our failures and our sin, whether it's a sin of omission or commission, doesn't matter, when we realize that and when we see it in light of a holy, righteous God that we just sang about, that's when we see our need, not for a physical Savior necessarily, but for a spiritual Savior. And so David made that leap, and we can make that leap. And we see it in David's life, but we also see it all the way back at the beginning of the story of God and man. All the way back in Genesis, we see the story of God being our Savior. You see, sin and its consequences began right there in the Garden of Eden. Check this out. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is one of the most interesting passages in all of Scripture because it gives the account of creation, right? And, and so there's, there's God creating everything that we see around us, and he creates Adam and Eve, and he places them, don't miss this, in the midst of a perfect garden. I mean, it couldn't be better. I know we're here in Hilton Head, and, and we call it paradise a lot, but nothing compared to the Garden of Eden. And there was Adam, and there was Eve, and there was God. And there was nothing to separate them from God. It says that they walked with him in the cool of the day. And so there was this closeness with God himself all the way back there in the beginning. In fact, Adam and Eve, husband and wife, they had no conflict. I, I know, it's hard to believe, right? But they had no conflict because there was no sin. The garden was perfect. And God put them there and he told them that there was one thing that they couldn't do. One thing. This is like the person that messes up and you're like, you had one job to do. You had one job and you couldn't even do that, right? They had one law, one thing. They couldn't eat from one tree in the midst of this perfect garden. That was the only thing they had to do. And I stop and I think, I think I could have probably conquered that. And then I really get introspective and I realize I probably couldn't have gone a day without being selfish and rebelling. And they were confronted by the serpent. 
and they rebelled against God with the one thing that they were supposed to do to keep things perfect. Thank you, Adam and Eve. And so the, the serpent comes and tempts them, and they eat from this tree. And all of a sudden, from that point on, sin entered the picture for us, for humanity. And so we have them to thank for it, because we were born into it, uh, Romans says. And so there it is. And in Genesis chapter 3, we see God, the picture of God being the Savior in the very curse that he, he, he gave them. And so we have Adam who was cursed because man would now have to work and they would have to toil. And, and thank you, Adam, for that. And, and you know, Eve had to have pain in childbirth. And all you ladies are like, thank you, Eve. Appreciate that. And so that was their curse. But I think sometimes we miss the curse that God gave the serpent, that he gave to Satan and I want you to check this out. In Genesis 3.14, he says you're going to have to crawl on the ground. A lot of theologians believe that the serpent actually stood before that and was like eye to eye with Adam and Eve, if you can believe that. And the curse was that he would have to crawl on the ground. But check this out in Genesis 3.15. This is part of the curse. He says to the serpent, serpent he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the darkest moment in the Garden of Eden. This is the point where the curses uh, from what they uh, did to rebel against God are being handed out. And in the midst of this dark moment there in Genesis, in the first part of Genesis, is actually hidden the hope of God being our Savior. Because the curse that the serpent had, the curse that Satan had, was that one day someone would come from the offspring of Eve that would crush his head. I don't know about you, I cannot stand snakes. I grew up in Florida, I live in South Carolina, uh, this is, it's not good, right? I mean, you know, this is something that we deal with all the time around here. And, and, and so there they were in the Garden of Eden, and, and the, the, uh, the serpent is the one who is cursed with this idea that, he, that someone will come and, and will actually strike his head. And what God was saying to the serpent, what he was saying to, to Satan was, is that someone will come from the offspring of Eve who will eventually have the victory. And one will come who will set us free from sin. And all you're going to do is just bite at our heels. That's it. That's all you can do. And see, they're hidden in Genesis 3, right in the midst of this dark moment the darkest moment in human history to that point in a very short period of time, we see that God is our Savior. I love Eve's response because her first child, she named him God because she believed so much that her offspring would be the Savior that she named her first offspring after God because she thought he was going to be the Savior. She got her timing off, but that's okay. It came much, much later in the form of Jesus, God's Son. And so there it is, right in the beginning, we see that you and I, who are humans, are cursed because of sin. We're held in bondage because of sin. It's literally like we're in chains because sin separates us from God. Sin keeps us from righteousness. Sin keeps us from freedom. And we ourselves try to look to everything else to try to find this. And Paul, if we fast forward to the New Testament, tells us, that it can only be found in Jesus. 
check this out in Romans, Paul's letter to the church in Rome in uh, chapter 6, verses 20 through 23. Check this out. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, he says. But then in verse 21, he says, but what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Essentially, he's saying there, how did that work out for you, by the way? You know? Okay, and so he says, from the end of those things is, I want you to say it with me, is death. From the end of those things, for the end of those things is death. But now, he says, here's the hope, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. That means becoming more like God and its end, eternal life. And he ends that chapter with a verse that may be familiar to some of you. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we see that God is our Savior and that picture of him being our Savior begins all the way back at the beginning of human history and makes its conclusion with Jesus coming and he's the one that defeats Satan and ultimately will extend to the time when it's all resolved one day. Thank God. Paul, before verse 20 talks about the fact that we can have freedom from sin. In verses, chapter 6, verse 6, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him, talking about Jesus there, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be, what's that next word say? Enslaved to sin. And I just want to stop for a second before we kind of draw some conclusions here. I, I, I get it that, for some of you, you walked in here today and you're like, the last thing that I need to hear in church is about sin. And the last thing I need to hear about when I go into church is the fact that I'm not good enough and that I'm held captive by sin, and I understand that. Some of you are like, this is PTSD from my religious experience of the past. But I want you to know that sin and it entering human history from the beginning makes God, our Savior, important. It makes it legitimate. It legitimizes it. Because if we had no sin, we wouldn't need a Savior. If we were able to resolve on our own the sin and the bondage that it keeps us from in our lives, we would not need freedom from sin. We wouldn't need a Savior in the first place. So when you look at the fact that we can't do it by ourselves and that we're in bondage and we're slaves to sin, when you look at it in the light of what God did by sending his son to be our savior, man, it makes it so much easier to talk about, doesn't it? It makes it so much easier to talk about. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And I don't know about you, but I even though I've been a Christ follower since I was a, a Christian when I was about six uh, years, six or seven years old, and then really got serious about it when I was about 12, 13, 14, right in that range, I still sin. I know that's hard to believe, but my wife is sitting in the back, and she can tell you it happens. My kids can tell you it happens. But you know what? If you're a Christ follower in here, we don't have to be slaves to sin. 
We don't have to be in bondage to it any longer because he has set us free. And we already have freedom from that sin. You see, going back and being in bondage to it would be like someone who was a slave and was set free going back in and saying, go ahead, put me in bondage again. And we would say, that's ridiculous. That's insane. Yet we as Christ followers fail and we do it all the time. And thank God that every time we sin, we can realize that he has set us free. For some of you here today, this is all new, and it might seem a little weird and crazy, and I, I get that. But maybe you've been at the point where you've almost accepted that freedom before. But maybe you just weren't quite ready. Maybe it didn't quite make sense up here or in your heart. I want you to know that you can walk in freedom today. By asking Jesus to be your Savior, by putting your trust in him for salvation, you can have the bondage of, of sin taken off. And you can have eternal life because when God sent his son Jesus to die on that cross, he defeated sin. And when he rose again three days later, he defeated death. And we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we can walk in freedom right now, right here today. The Emancipation Proclamation was signed on the first day of 1863. We were on the way in today, and I asked my kids, I said, uh, hey, you guys know what the Emancipation Proclamation is? I wasn't testing them as much as I was testing their education. So anyway, but I asked them that question, and my daughter says, yes, very quickly. And I said, well, explain it to me, and there was a little bit of silence. And I said, do you really not know this? And she's like, well, I just didn't want you to explain it. So I said, yes. And I'm like, you have learned well, dear. You have learned well. Because dad will go on and on, especially about history. The Emancipation Proclamation was signed on the first day of 1863. President Lincoln, by executive order, freed through the stroke of a pen. He freed three and a half to four million slaves in this country. But historians and experts tell us that on January 1st, 1963, er, 18, not 19, 1863, that fewer than 75,000 slaves actually walked in freedom. And it took years and decades, and of course you know the history, and unfortunately there were many, many decades that many of those slaves never walked into freedom. But I want you to know, wherever you are in your faith journey, that today can be your January 1st, 1863, spiritually. You no longer have to live in December 31st, 1862, you can walk in freedom today by putting your trust in God's son, Jesus. Because him sending him, him sending his only son to die on the cross and to be resurrected three days later is the reason that God is our savior. 
Father God, thank you so much that beyond faithful and beyond almighty God and beyond our Father and beyond shepherd and beyond our King and beyond everlasting and beyond our provider that you are our Savior, who redeemed us with grace, not with condemnation and judgment and guilt, but you redeemed us with grace by sending your son Jesus to die on the cross so that we can be free from the bondage of sin. God, I thank you that you did that. God, I thank you that you are our Savior.